If you like what we do here at The Prestige, or any of our shows at Kaiju FM, please consider supporting our Patreon. You can check us out at patreon.com forward slash FM. This month, Sam and I sat down and talked about the best film for every year that we've been alive. As you can imagine, there were some disagreements, and Sam failed to accept that The English Patient was boring as hell. Cheers, and on with the show. Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always we end with our recommendations for further movies, other movies to watch inspired by this film, be it its theme, its actors, directors, whatever you fancy. But as usual we start with a look at what else we've been watching something media wise this week. So Rob, how about you? As we often discuss in the show my life now is ruled by my daughter so my films are ones that I can watch while she sleeps next to me so this weekend I have watched the film Fanboys now not everyone has seen or even heard of Fanboys and I'm, I'm, I'm desperately quickly googling now who directed it but essentially it is the tale of some fanboys no, no, 2009 it's the tale of some Star Wars fanboys who do a cross-country mission to help their dying friend to watch The Phantom Menace before it's released and before he dies. It's rife with cameos and in-jokes and all manner of things. It features Chatner, Princess Leia's in it, okay, Fisher's real name, Kevin Smith, um, Ray Park. It's full of in-jokes and things about Star Wars. If you're a Star Wars fan, there's a lot to love about this movie. And it's just full of heart and fun and sweetness. So yeah, fanboys. It's uh, not a change the world, but it is just lovely. This week, I watched... I I wanted something sort of mindless. I was particularly tired. Um, And I very rarely switch a film off halfway through, but it just bored me. Um, it was, uh, and I'd, I'd seen it, seen it already, and didn't think much of it all the time. At the time, it's the 2011 Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Now, I love these books, and um, not, I don't think they're necessarily amazing. Go to change the world, but they, they were. They were incredibly addictive, and I really enjoyed reading them. I thought they were particularly well constructed, and I just enjoyed them. Um, I consumed them on holiday several years ago, and I then saw the two thousand nine Swedish films, um, fairly faithful renditions of them, and they were great. The films seemed to be faithful to the books or to the spirit of the books. No. We've talked before about it doesn't matter if you're faithful to the letter of the books. Um, they're faithful to the spirits and they were just quite enjoyable. And then Hollywood being Hollywood thought, oh, we can't have Swedish language films of these incredibly popular books. So let's remake a, a big budget American version, bizarrely have 
all the Swedish characters speaking English um, and have Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara in it. And I'm not sure why they did, because they should have left well alone. The 2009 films were great. Subtitles, man. Subtitles. People won't watch yeah. them. It, it, that, that saddens me. I feel welcome to the modern age is all I can uh, say there. So. Yeah. Whatever. So, this week, um, we are looking at the next film, the Batman franchise. It's Batman Forever. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black bat? In an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. Batman Forever is the first Joel Schumacher film in the franchise. The studio in collaboration with Tim Burton decided that it was a mutual decision for him not to direct the next one I don't know what how pointed that that little snippet is but he took a back seat he's got a producing role on this 1995 film Batman Returns obviously um although this time he's um played by Val Kilmer Michael Keaton didn't return and his standard blonde-ish, and she's not entirely blonde, femme fatale, is Nicole Kidman's psychiatrist, Chase Meridian. It's our first introduction to Chris O'Donnell as Dick Grayson or Robin, and there are two villains, Tommy Lee Jones' Two-Face, or Harvey Dent, and Jim Carrey's Riddler, or Ebbard Enigma. And Batman Bruce Wayne must deal with the attentions of Meridian, the traumas of Robin, whose whole family were killed by Two-Face, and the plotting of the villains, which revolves around a plan to steal the brain power of Gothamites using a machine created by Edward Nygma, uh, the alter ego of the Riddler. And that's about it. So, we, I I know already that opinions are going are gonna to differ about this. Rob, you go first. Yeah, so, now... As always with the show, uh, I feel that I need to defend these movies. Because I'm well aware that Sam, in his snobby elitist Oxbridge way, is going to poo-poo all over this film. And so I need, I need to be here to stand up for them. So, Batman Forever. I have gone on record as probably saying that this is my favourite Batman film ever. And so far in this rewatch, and we'll see if that stands up over the course of the uh, the next uh, few weeks. But so far, this still remains my favourite Batman film. <laughs> I think I I will happily say yes. It doesn't have the dark gothic tones of the Burton films, and it doesn't have the gritty realism of the Nolan films. But what it does have is fun and enjoyment and a charismatic and watchable Batman and memorable villains. Yes, it's a kid's film. Yes, it is a neon family film and it doesn't pretend to be any otherwise. But I just enjoy it the most. I think that 
Tommy Lee Jones is cutting loose now in June when he kind of cuts loose. I really like, and this will be a big attention. I know I really like Jim Carrey's portrayal of the Riddler here. And I think, and I will talk this more, this is the first and maybe only film who nails something about Batman that no other film nails. And this is something we'll, I will touch on much more with Nolan films. But Batman is the world's greatest detective. That is the, his, literally his subtitle, the world's greatest detective. The idea being that he always has a plan, he's always one step ahead. At no point in the two films up to this point, and no film after this, do we see him being smart. We see him having lots of toys, and having lots of fancy kit, and being strong and violent, mm. and determined, certainly. But we never see the idea that this man is smarter than everyone else is. And in this, in his c- combat, if you want to call that, with the Riddler, and it is a matching of wits and wills rather than physicality we have the 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 true detectiveness of batman shows through and i just think it's visually memorable i I will hand on heart say some of the cgi has not aged well um especially some of the cityscapes have really not aged well Um, but i will i will defend this film heartily and now allow Sam, the elitist snob that he is, <laughs> to poo-poo all of your dreams. Oh, Sam. I can't be an elitist snob if I just talked about loving Stig Larson, for goodness sake. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think you can. <laughs> We're talking about Batman Forever here. We're on different levels. Oh, I love trashy films. I, ha- mm-hmm. I, I have gone on record as saying that Die Hard 2 is... It's one of my favourite films. I wouldn't wouldn't say it's it's my favourite film, in, by any stretch. But I I love the the stupid slapstick nature of the violence in that. Um, I just don't think this is any good. And also, I I see what you're saying about when when you're talking about um. Batman as a detective, and I was just thinking about the the whole figuring out the Riddler and mystery. And I thought that that was really good, and I got that. And I really like Robin. I think Chris O'Connell is great, um, but I I loathe Jim Carrey, and I don't understand. I was I was reading an article just now about. Um, Casting decisions and Robin Williams was supposed to be, be the Riddler first, and how amazing would that have been? And they get Jim Carrey in doing, I don't know. The thing about Jim Carrey is that I think he just thinks he's better than everything. He's better than every film he's in, and it's just it's just tiring. And I don't understand it. And. I do. I I like him in one film, the the Truman Show, and bizarrely, that is the one film that is all about him. Although I said that, my other half said, "Yeah, what about the Mask and Ace Ventura?" And I thought, "Yeah, okay, I'll get back in my box." Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not down with Ace Ventura. I'm not with him on that one. So the true Truman Show is is the one the one I I will actually um, allow of it. I just don't get it. I think this is this is a film about Batman, and Jim Carrey thinks it's a film all about him, and I don't like that. I can see what you're saying, but Batman films are almost always about the bad guy. 
In the last two films we've watched, we've always discussed that the Batman was often the least interesting character, isn't it? Yes. And, and I, will, I will grant you, this film is, it is a kid's film. Like, I think that's the thing to remember. You know, his, his plan is to steal people's intelligences and then steal their stuff. Yeah. You know, this, this isn't a dark, a dark, you know, emotionally wrought sense of story of betrayal and that stuff. It is, it is silly and fun. And I suppose I just enjoy it more. Mm. But then I'm the problem, the problem you've got with, with the Batman world is, despite me fan of Batman, I really don't like Tim Burton or Nolan. And those being the two giants that destroyed the uh, the franchise currently, the little one in the middle are going to take my, going to take my vote because I dislike the other one so much. Yeah, I suppose. Then, then what are you going to say about Batman, Batman and Robin next week? Some things are beyond the pale. Yeah. So. <laughs> Quite. I just think that this could have been a good film. The the I, mean, I, I see what you're saying with with the villain being the villain being bigger than Batman. We've had that before, but. <sighs> He's just too much. I'm sorry, I can't take any more of him. He's just too much. I think he's certainly bringing a a lot of acting, shall we say, to the part. Yeah. And I can I can totally, whilst I don't mind it, I can totally see why people really wouldn't dig to Jim Carrey's role here. And I suppose the same with Dr. Millie Jones. You know, he is he's channeling something quite out there in his role. Mm. Um, and I, I can see why it would turn people off, but I think this is, and this is maybe a bit more of a larger rant of my part. I think so often comic book films are trying so hard to not be comic books. I see that, yeah. Um, and if you look at the Marvel films and the recent DC films, and even the Tim Burton and Nolan films you talked here, very few films are like, you know what? We come from kids' cartoons, kids' comic books. Mm. And I, I say this as a, as, a, as a lifelong comic book reader. A lot of them are incredibly silly. Mm. You know, yes, some of them deal with really deep issues. Some of them are Preacher and The Walking Dead and things like that. From Hell, Watchmen. But Watchmen is only so powerful because it took these what inherently comedic, not comedic, but, you know, cartoony characters and dislike serious with them. But if they were all Watchmen, Watchmen would be nothing. Hmm. And I suppose I, I maybe maybe I'm just being a bit overly aggressive in this, but I feel like I need to fight back against this idea that by making a comic book into a film, it's got to become somehow dour and serious, and it can't be silly and fun at the same time. Yes, yeah. I and that's maybe why I I I, I sort of go on a hill for this hmm. one. I I completely agree with you. I mean... Rob and I both both love comic books. To move a little bit beyond our, our reviews and rants, I do think there are some interesting themes and ideas and things that sort of resonate through this film. And the one word that kept coming back to me through through this sort of watching this film and letting it digest in the days afterwards is this idea of addiction and each of the characters' addictions to things and. The idea of addiction as as a bad thing, a recurring motif of of, of downfall, and you have, I mean, just to take it off the top, you've got Batman who appears to have dealt with his his addiction to revenge and uses that as like a mentor figure to deal with Dick Grayson, Robin's 
feelings of revenge, uh, 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 of addiction to revenge. You've got Two Faces' clear addiction to his coin is his is his undoing at the end. Mm. And although you've got Nigma, who I think is a, initially being addicted to Bruce Wayne and that kind of thing, then gets this idea of power through the box. But later on, you see him clearly also addicted to the box. He sits, there's a scene in which he sits. He looks like Lincoln on the um, memorial in, in Washington. He sits there in his giant chair, hands out, with just streaming the, the, the box into his head. And he seems to become as much a servant to that as its master. And this idea that and even Chase Meridian, who has her life, lifelong problem with bad boys, as she said, put it, there's this, this feeling that these people are are... are, are slave to their own addictions and only by Batman and Robin conquering their addictions of, of revenge or whatever can they in the end triumph over um, the Riddler and Two-Face I see that but do they actually conquer their addictions I mean I'm, I'm thinking I'm not thinking about about Batman errors I'm thinking about Robin like does does he actually overcome the desire to get rid of Two Face? It's an interesting one because I think because he, he doesn't he isn't the one that kills Two Face. No, um, essentially Batman kind of does um, through a backhanded way. Well, so, uh, essentially no one does. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, in in all these cunning Two um, Batman ways, they end up killing themselves, don't they? Really. Mm, yeah. Um, in sort of a little loophole for Batman, but it felt to me that they weren't. That Robin himself was no longer driven by okay. revenge. He was driven by the sense of justice. Um, you know, there's that scene in which there's literally the shot in which Toothpaste is hanging off the side of this um, sort of fly, now flying rock, and Robin could let him fall. But he's like, "No, I will see you in jail." And yeah. that's not revenge. That's 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 justice. Mm. And I do think he, he by conquering that, that's how they ended up winning. Yeah, I see that. I see, and that's that's a. I'm not, I'm not sure when that happens in Robin. Does, is it the moment that he sees Two Face dangling that he thinks, okay, revenge is a bad thing, or is he decided that beforehand? I think so. I think it is. He is is that image like he has the the guy's life in his hands, hmm. and it's kind of like well then. He can't, he can't make that final step to kill someone. Which shows you it's an interesting thing about Robin and Robin's psychology that he, and he's just an angry young man, he never really, he didn't really want to kill Two-Face all along. Mm. He, he, he realises at the end that actually he never wanted to enact punishment on, or that final fatal punishment on Two-Face. He, he always wanted to see justice brought to him. I suppose yep. that that's that's what this this film is about. How do you mean? I mean, th- th- this film this film is not about, um, like Batman getting rid of the two villains. It's about the two heroes overcoming this this need for revenge. Yeah, I, uh, that that's the you know it's it's the that that third act. And sort of undiscovery um, here. It's not a here's the tool, here's the here's the magic button to, or the magic spell to see the world. It's about people and emotions. And you know, for a film that is very neon and very shiny, that's mm. something quite deep. Yeah. But I mean, 
not wishing to dwell too much on on this there's other, one other thing i want to talk about and this is just my personal sort of uh hobby horse a little bit is i think visually the film does a lot of work in terms of recurring motifs what do you mean well the one that i'm going to talk about is, is robin robin has this recurring motif of red and yellow in circles now if you cast your mind back to the scene in which we first meet robin He's a uh, acrobatic, um, high wire artist, and we have this shot of the the drum being beaten by the um, the uh, sort of drummers at thing, and it's big circular, yellow and red circles. The shot down from above after parents have died, red and yellow circles, and this has this recurring motif of red and yellow. And him, him like he, he he once he sort of stops being Robin, as it were, he goes away from these colours of red and yellow, but he then re embraces them. Um, in his Robin costume at the end. And you've got the um, Edward Nigma, who is green, clearly green. Um, he, for the very first time you see him wearing this light green shirt. And the further down the sort of the rabbit hole of the Riddler he goes, the greener and the greener he gets. Um, even to the very last scene where absolutely everything he's wearing is green, apart from his suit, which is shiny reflective, thus also green. And even Two-Face has this kind of purplish recurring, even the very first scene in which he's robbing, it's all very purple, and obviously half his purple face. And this recurring colour palette is used by this character. And I think it's, I mean, what I'm trying to put about is that I'm not saying this is a sort of deep thematic colour pairing here, but in terms of a filmmaking narrative and filmmaking tool, by colour coding your characters, you start, you can start to build both repetition even build repetition into mm. the audience and so they can start to understand the colour coding of events and so when you have a scene with um, Riddler and Two-Face you can tell who's in charge by what colours are going on around them yeah. so you get the very last scene it's all green because at this point it's just the Riddler show Riddler's in charge because he becomes so smart and all that stuff but earlier when they're reading the house it's all kind of purplies and reds because Two-Face is in charge Mm. And the, the the cinematographer um, went in this one, and he's, he, he, you see him working with these color palettes to tell us more about what's going on, who's in charge, and what's going on. In addition to the actual narrative, and I think that links to something else that it takes back to duality that we've talked about before. But that um, Bruce Wayne and Batman, two sides of the same coin, to mm-hmm. use a two-faced analogy. But they each have their own... It's something I've seen George Schumacher talking about. They each have their own villain. So Bruce Wayne and Edward Nygma, or the Riddler, are paired. And then Batman and Two-Face are paired. And they they have these these two, these parallel battles that are going on that get, get resolved right at the end. And then that you see, you see that in, in the house, because... Not only are there are there purples and reds that indicate that that two faces in charge rather than the Riddler. There's also there's also a warmth to it, and it's it's not sort of blacks and blues of Batman, the mm. dark darks. Is it's the the warmth of Bruce Wayne as well. I I I I agree. I think that there is an interesting duality. We touched on that earlier in the first episode. There's an interesting sort of mirroring here in many ways. 
because as you say, like each each facet of Bruce Wayne Batman has got his own villain. But at the same time, within that, you've got you know Two Face. He is his own mirroring. He he is both versions of himself at the same time. And the Riddler obviously has um, Edward Nigma as his his um, sort of day to day covering. Um, and you end up in this world, and it's a whole longer conversation about who who is the real version of characters and batman here says i'm both at the same time but the question isn't answered for enigma isn't is the riddler who he really is having absorbed all the minds he now on crazy or is edward enigma who he really is and the riddler's just his kind of his ego or his id cut loose mm. yeah right then rob for stalling much longer conversation that you, that you no doubt could go on with let's have some recommendations you go first so I'm, I'm going to here. Um, both are not really thematically linked, but uh, both films I love, both needing um, some, not needing love, but worth love. So I discussed earlier, I really like Val Kilmer as Batman in this, and I just really like him in almost everything. So I'm going to recommend a film from two years earlier, and it is the film that uh, he was seen in and that inspired the choice of making Batman. And that is the 1993 film Tombstone. The tale of Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer as the um, Wyatt Earp boys, Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday. I'm sure I mentioned it recently um, for watching it. It's just really good. It's just one of the best westerns, uh, more than action westerns compared to the old sort of pity westerns. But it's one of the best westerns I've ever seen. And I will say that Kurt Russell is brilliant in it and very memorable, certainly. Secondly, I take him director. Now, I must say, we, when I was watching this with my wife... We, she, she's in Sam's camp on it being a terrible film and we're discussing Joel Schumacher as director and in, in my mind I must say he was kind of down like a, a dumb action guy and that's what the box I put him in in my, in my director in my head and so I went looking for him and he's done like, some really good amazing films Time to Kill that kind of thing but the film I want to highlight and it's a film that often my films I talk about here were big at the time and I've kind of forgotten now and that's also from 1993 and that's the film Falling Down now, if you haven't seen this, it's a tale of Michael Douglas as a standard company man who, in the heat of a um, L.A. summer, just kind of checks out and starts lashing out against the society around him and all the problems with it. It, you know, he's armed with machine guns and bats and raging against the fact you can't buy a McDonald's breakfast at ten thirty-five rather than ten thirty. Um, but it is, it's a sort of a vicious takedown a lot of modern society um and it still holds true to the day it still holds good so that's looking at what oh god 24 years later this film still stands out as as prescient and and with something to say for us so if you haven't seen it i can only recommend that falling down so much yeah i have two recommendations here which i'm looking at them they i don't think they could be further apart they are just bizarre the the first one is um, it's a link to Tommy Lee Jones, and I'm not sure about him as Two Face here, but he is an outstanding actor. And the link, uh, the film film to link to here is is one that I enjoyed when it came out, although it is, given the directors, it's understandably confusing. It is the film No Country for Old Men. 
particularly I enjoyed Tony Jones in this. I enjoyed Javier Bardem in this. It's just a great film. It, it's a very bizarre film, but it's a great film. My second one this week, and the, I mean, the, I'm not sure how, how much different you could get, but this really is a very different film. Um, and I was looking at the music. Now, the composer of this, Elio Goldthal, was also known for the excellent Heat, which stars Val Kilmer instantly. Um, but I mentioned Heat recently. I mean, not that it's not worth mentioning again. It's a great film, but I have mentioned it recently. Um, so I've gone for something that the music reminded me of. And the music, particularly in the first Robin fight scene, has a lot of um, clashing chords and the the cadences are it, it's it's very jazzy the way it's it's sort of sort of a dance scene as much as a fight scene and it reminded me of West Side Story so that that is my recommendation the film version of West Side Story is my second recommendation for this week well guys we'll be back next week with Batman and Robin uh, I would say probably the conclusion to the first era of Batman films. Yes. And uh, we'll maybe talk about why that was. Um, I don't think I'll be as, as strenuous in my defence. But we shall see. I haven't watched it in many years. It may win me over. Till then, guys, you can find us online. Find us on Twitter, at Precious Podcast. You can find just me, at Life underscore Academic. And you can find me, at Rob Kaiju. Come join me and talk about how ace this film is and tell Sam how wrong he is and how brilliant it is. How can you not listen to me? You're not listening to your own wife. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.